Hello, Michael. How are you today? I am doing wonderfully. High energy, Luke. Always. How many days left uh, in the work year for you? I've, I hear you have a bit of a running count countdown going. <laughs> I have been. I have been. Look, you know, it's been uh, a long three years, really, since uh, that pandemic first bit, and um, I am uh, pretty excited about the upcoming festive season and uh, starting to enjoy that in 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 Sydney, which uh, I think last week, you know, Sydney does things quite well when it comes to parties and uh, the long lunch down George Street um, was quite an affair, um, I've got to say. So I'm enjoying enjoying Sydney in the summer. I do summer. have to say, I know we caught up for dinner last week in Sydney and I think I messaged you on Thursday I was in the city and it was absolutely heaving. Like it felt like the uh, festive season, seasons of old, every bar you walk past, there were people spilling out onto the streets. And this is sort of three, four o'clock in the afternoon. I think I was in the city through till I had dinner at Hubert actually on Thursday night um, until around midnight and it was still still very busy. Um, so it felt like it was back, which was awesome. You can't fight Sydney in summer is a short story, you know. Like it's just one of those things. The people who live here, like live here for that reason and so given the opportunity and the right conditions and away we go so look i don't think it's a cause for complacency at all you know and i think that we're um continuing to make sure that that uh largesse is spread it's you know we've got businesses like enjoying it that people are thinking about new business models i I took a photo of a coffee shop in sydney that was open at four o'clock the other day and the reason i did that is that you know it was one of those things back in the day that be a complaint you can't get a coffee in sydney at four because everyone was opening cafes at seven and shutting them at three and now because of the movement in workplace and uh, how people are using the city there's a a good 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 amount of trade that i think like kicks off with a late brunch at 10 and travels through into the early hours so it's uh it's all very good and i think we should reflect um and uh, for reflect on that as, a, as not too bad a place to be. All things oh, 100%. It's, um, it's great. Uh, now, you have organised today's guest. Who is he? Yeah, it's James Thorpe. And I guess uh, he's well known in circles that I move in, um, although... I guess by numbers, not, not not the biggest hospitality group, but we're very pleased to see him get a 4am development consent for a new venue in Newtown. And uh, I'll be happy as well when that is not news in Sydney. I think that I'd be really pleased if, um, but it, it, it did it did break the internet, that story. And I, But I, like quite happily, for it, it's been a, uh, I think it's just given people hope because I think a lot of the stuff that I do, of course, it's all talk, right? Like until you see action and what does action look like? It's, it is announcements like that. And so, you know, I'm um, very. Uh, I was quite taken back with the um, with with the response from the sector on it, and uh, I thought it'd be great to get him on and um, not talk just about that, but just you know about his his operations generally. And uh, and again, he's he's venturing south of the border into Melbourne, and it's not a competition. It is, <laughs> and um, I'm I'm kind of keen to keen to understand a little bit about you know why that is because for so long, you know, you know, a lot of our leading lights in Sydney hospitality have have of course come from come from Melbourne and um, you know it's nice for for us to see some of our own talent um, you know migrating south. It can be a question for now. I was going to hold it, but do you see do you not see benefit in having operators that span multiple states as opposed to it being a competition? I think you know that the um, and I know you were joking. You were saying that tongue in cheek, but having that I guess cross pollination of operators across the two cities, I, I would see as like a really good thing. So and there's been some really notable businesses that have done it recently. So um, it's it's awesome. Absolutely, like it's got to be. You know, we we've learned that we work well collaborating, and then the more that you have a south east 
block, like southeast, southeast and eastern, and even across New Zealand, across things like talent, supply, um, travel, like it's it's benefit for everyone. And um, so you, you know, I guess uh, in, in my next year of the job, I hope I get to actually travel a bit more than I have the last year or two. Because one of the best things about these two cities, Sydney, and Melbourne, is that they're an hour away from each other. And um, you know, that's the the thing that I think um, makes it makes it um, a strong. A strong, a stronger market on the whole, um, and of course the supply chain and everyone else benefits from that. And so, yep, totally uh, tongue in cheek. Interesting to note that we don't tend to see too many people going north from Sydney. It seems to be from Sydney to Brizzy. You see more Melbourne operators going from Melbourne to Brisbane than you do Sydney to Brisbane. With you know McConnell's just announced up there, uh, Stokehouse went up there. Probably Otto's the only one I can think of. We're getting exceptionally sidetracked here on the intro to uh, James Thorpe, but I think maybe we need to. Um, um, have some kind of look at how we can get some Sydney operators up to Melbourne or just maybe have a chat to some that have done it and find out you know, what the actual experience is like. Yeah, what the dynamic is. Anyway, so James Thorpe, uh, legend of, uh, of the Sydney scene and soon to be Melbourne, uh, will be our next guest. So let's get into it. Nice. Well, uh, James Thorpe, welcome to the Back of House podcast. How are you, my friend? Good, thank you, mate. Thank you for having me. You're very relaxed for a man who's looking to open new venues like left, right and centre. I've got to say, but I appreciate the uh, calm demeanour. Oh, it's all a facade. <laughs> Don't worry, it's chaos <laughs> under the surface. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we've been spending a bit of time together because uh, uh, one of the many things that we've discussed in, in the time I've been in this role and, and you've been doing what you've done is the inordinate amount of com- complexity involved in opening venues in Sydney at least, but very pleased to, and the market's been very pleased to hear about the 4am uh, uh, gig that you've got going, going in, in, in Newtown. So congratulations on that. We'll, uh, we'll come to that probably at some point in the podcast, but uh, I think um, it'd be helpful for listeners just to uh, get a bit of, uh, you know, the potted, the potted bio all things James, where did you start? How did you how did you land yourself as as a as a empresario of Sydney nightlife? <laughs> how much time have you got? Because <laughs> uh, story's a bit of a long one and a bit, bit left of centre, really. I um, we, we like left of centre. Yeah, no, I've got, I've got, I actually do. I've got a bit of an interesting story because I actually um, I actually haven't been in hospitality for all that long. I've only been running sort of bars, pubs, restaurants, nightclubs for probably about nine years now eight or nine years. I, before that, actually um, worked as a band, like, artist, tour manager and played in a band. So, which, you know, like, being a band manager, like, it's actually surprisingly similar to running a service at a pub because you, it's about a bunch of, like, drunk idiots who want things that they can't have and, like, you have to put it on rails and make sure that everything runs smoothly <laughs> and everyone's happy. <laughs> Pretty similar to, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, my, um, my kind of like foray into hospitality actually is it's like quite a, a, a long story, but basically I was in this band raised, raised as a Christian, both sets of my grandparents are like Baptist ministers. So very conservative Christian family I was in this sort of Christian rock, like hardcore band moved to moved to America when I was about 20. Lived there for about three years, um, touring around, like living there and touring around. And while I was um, while I was doing that, which was like all, one of the best times of my life, like being in a different city every day, driving between, I um, I kind of like started really thinking deeply about my faith and um, 
wanted to sort of study more. So I, I signed up to like, I was doing a degree via Corridon. So I was literally sitting in like the green room of the venue we were playing that night or in a Starbucks, like working on assignments and stuff um, in sort of like early Christian history and philosophy because I kind of thought, you know, um, if this is the real deal, then there's going to be evidence in in early Christian history and in philosophical argument that it is. Uh, kind of like en- ended my time in America, um, left the band, moved back home and started working as a tour manager here and started continuing studying at the University of Sydney where I finished my honours degree. And during that time, just the cost of living in Sydney was uh, was horrendous, like it always has been, right? And you know when you're at university you kind of get the same pissy like rent assistance that someone who lives in like orange gets (laughs) that they think it's like you know yeah here's 200 bucks a fortnight to live right near broadway in sydney like oh yeah great thanks so i had to get a job while i was there and um i uh so I, i started working as a glassy at a pub in the city and by this time, by the way, I had, I had lost my faith. I um, got really into, into philosophy and, um, you know, did my honours year in, in philosophy of, of religion and metaphysics, philosophy of science, got an offer to do my PhD at Oxford at Balliol College. And by that point, I was like peak pub. I fucking absolutely loved working in the pub. I was just like just collecting glasses and kicking kegs around at that point. And I remember my first day as a glassy, I showed up in like, you know, basically a suit. Thinking back on, I remember at the end of the night, like, cause I had no idea what I was supposed to wear. It was this kind of like clubby, functiony pub in the city. So I wore like a collared shirt and like nice shoes that I shined up. And I remember by the end of the night, I just had like, my feet were just torn apart because I'd been carrying kegs up. This particular pub had a basement. Like it's like one of those historical, you know, a class overlay buildings in the city. So the cellar was like in the fucking Westfield down three sets of stairs and, you know, a hundred meters away from the pub. And they were expecting us to just like carry function shit up all, all night. And um, I remember just being wrecked and my feet were like bleeding after that shift. And I didn't wear suit shoes to a shift again after that but I, I just fell in love with the place like and with pubs in general like pubs have this real um it, it's like we use the word melting pot a lot in our society but pubs really are that for sydney it's just like meeting place where people of all socioeconomic backgrounds can come and be treated equally and fairly and you know meet together and you know do whatever really um they're a really special thing in Australia fell in love with it so I I bailed on my offer to Oxford and took a job as a cellar manager at the pub in the city and um sort of from there I ascended the ranks became the operations manager there and then you know did the standard Sydney hospitality thing where you kind of like move around and move your way up the ladder, which, uh, as you know, Luke would know is happening far, far quicker for people these days than it ever has. <laughs> feel right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like you get a resume for someone who wants a role as a supervisor. And then in six months time, you get the same applicant applying for a GM role. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Things really, yes. Either you're amazing or like the labor market's real fucking tight, which, you know, 
So I ended up as like, you know, venue manager at a um, quite a large pub in Newtown and then um, kind of like convinced the bank somehow to give me a loan and bought my first pub, which was the Tap House in Darlinghurst, which we, we don't have in our, our portfolio anymore. But that's kind of, that's my, the, the long and short of my story. Well, and then there's a few, a few, a few um, things post that and I can't help but observe that while you didn't go to Oxford, I assume, you just thought you'd go and get a pub called the Oxford as well. I mean, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I've never, that's never actually occurred to me before, but I, I actually have this really vivid memory of sitting inside the Oxford Tavern when I was a, an early bar manager and just being blown away by what Jamie Worth and Michael Delaney had done in there like this really cool dive bar. I don't know if you ever visited the Oxford, like in its kind of prime in 2013, 2014, but it was like this awesome divey cool thing. Um, and just thinking, fuck, I'd love to own a place like this one day. Thinking back on that's really surreal. Cause obviously like we do own that pub today. It was our second pub in the portfolio, but it had never occurred to me that it had the same name as the university that I, that I turned down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm looking forward to my own one, the Cambridge, at some point. But hey, so like, why don't you give us a bit of a why don't you give us a bit of a uh, overview then of the group's operations and just to for listeners who may not be so familiar with you because it's uh yes, yeah, Sydney business based, but you, I know that you've got expansion plans. So just give us a bit of a flavour of where you are, what you've got. So we own and operate like some of the some of Sydney's best kind of like dive and authentic pubs, I guess I'd call them. Sydney has this, this really disappointing thing where obviously it's obsessed with gaming machines and that has, um, has flow on effects into like how our pubs are kind of designed and, and what they're like. And we, we don't, we don't do the gaming thing, which is qu- uh, pretty uncommon. Like 76% of the world's non-casino gaming machines is, are in Australia. It's just a stat that I read the other day when I was um, doing some research for something. Uh, it's shocking. Like we have this this unique, curious obsession with them here. So our, our pubs are kind of known for just being pubs, but also our culinary team led by our group executive chef, James McDonald has sort of worked its way out such that we don't really, we, we, we kind of do like elevated food in our pubs as well. Like you go to the old fits, for example, and the pub menu is not anything like what normally resembles a pub menu. Like the head chef was the head chef at Monopole, you know, it's uh, that, that's, we're kind of like interested in unique food and beverage experiences um, in those venues. So we've got the Duke, the Oxford tab, the old fits, we opened our kind of like namesake bar and restaurant called Odd Culture in Newtown a year ago, actually, halfway through November last year. We just had the first birthday. Um, and that has a bottle shop attached to it, like four doors up, not physically attached, but, you know, attached in spirit, I guess. <laughs> we have a new bar in the works in Newtown, which you mentioned earlier, Mike, um, where we've just been approved for a 4am development consent. Um, we have something in the works in Melbourne at the moment as well. And there's probably also a play into the Sydney CBD in the next year or two as well. So lots going on. I, I feel like, a, a lot, but partly you can understand from, I think listeners will understand from my perspective, why I'm interested in venues generally, but obviously tracking your, 
your journey because I think that it is representative of what the government strategy in the area is trying to achieve, which is a diversification of entertainment spaces later into the evening. And I think, and forgive my ignorance, but I, I, I know I've dined very late at Old Culture in Newtown, um, and I don't know if you're trading all the way through till two still, night on night. But that yeah. was one of the yeah one of the ambitions of it. And you know, and and of course, um, I often have to explain to a lot of people that uh, who say. Why, why do you need to be out at midnight or one in the morning? Well, like if you're a hospitality worker, if you're a, a shift worker coming off shift, you want a musician finishing a gig, where can you find something decent to eat? And it's great that we can direct them to, to your joint and amongst others in, in the city now. Um, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, quite quite exciting to hear, hear your expansion plans. And I guess, like, do you think that they're um, at some level, yeah, it's a hard, hard question maybe, but like, what does it tell you about the market and what the market wants? There's always a lot of speculation around, you, you know, like, People have perceptions about people, what people want, but you, you're actually on the tools, building entertainment experiences, whatever you want to call them, for a generation of people. Like, what is your demographic that you're attracting, and is it represent? What can it tell us? It's hard to say what the demographic is because we do really get all all walks of life through the door. But I think one thing that we really want to contribute in Sydney, in particular, is just that diversification piece, right? Like Sydney post midnight even before the lockouts, has been very one-dimensional, you know, like basically, and, and you know, I've, I've worked at pubs and nightclubs for a little while and you have, as you say, you have this moment where you finish work at 1am and it's like, what do we do? And when I worked in Newtown, it was like, and it's the reason why our group has become obsessed with Newtown because I have this obsession with King Street. I love it. But, you know, we would finish up at the Newtown Hotel and want to go for a drink and i the, your choices were you can go and have you know a vodka lime soda spilt in your lap at marley over the road <laughs> um, and sort of try and shout over a dance floor and a dj or you can go sit in the bright gaming room down the road those were kind of like the options that were there and i remember traveling like you know even before my hospitality career but also since in places like europe and places where they they generally just eat a lot later than us and the diversification is uh, it's manifest over there like there's all kinds of ways that you can experience that late period and people you know certainly governments in other places don't look at it with the same level of suspicion i guess is the right word which we still experience now like when we put applications in you get this like incredulous stare from the police being like why do you want to trade later than two? Like, why? And, uh, you know, full credit to them. They deal with all the, the, the arse end of when compliance goes bad, you know, and it's absolutely in their interest to make sure that operators are, you know, doing the right thing and, and you know, full, full respect to them. But I, I think it, it's also incumbent on us as operators to, to demonstrate that, we can create those diverse experiences after midnight or after two. After two is what I've started saying because I think up until two, we've sort of got to the point where no one asks any questions anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, base base hours in in um, in the, the zoning that obtains over most of the CBD and part of our little sliver of Newtown that we got that license until till two, and the standard hours for a small bar license until two, and that's a low impact license type now so i feel like everyone's comfortable with two but where obviously you know i'm quite a boundary pusher 
you know, I see, I see in the planning controls that they allow for 24 hour trading hypothetically. And I, you know, we want to get in there and, <laughs> and I feel like the presumption should be like, why not? You know, it shouldn't be why it shouldn't be the incredulous. Step. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let Luke in on a question he's dying to ask at the moment, but like, I find myself um, saying this often that uh, it, we, we tend to regulate for the day and say, no, at night, this is the kind of, supposition that's embedded in um the way that you know in the colony the laws were set up and i find my role is to change that no at night to yes unless is what i keep saying to people yes unless is is the mindset i'd love to get to I was interested in terms of your perspective being in the thick of it. Do you, do you feel there's a bit of momentum in relation to your approach from the broader market? And that may seem like a maybe a tough question to either understand or answer. But I guess if you look back, and I haven't really clocked it until now, but we've spoken about it a few times on the po- podcast. If you go back sort of 10 years, sort of pre-lockouts, there were businesses like yours with a similar approach who were coming out and doing smaller venues, very food and beverage focused, interesting food and beverage products. You look at the Swillhouse guys, you know, Frankie's, I think, turned 10 this week and is sadly closing. And then I, I feel like the industry lost a bit of momentum in terms of having those smaller operators or operators of smaller venues um, doing unique things. Um, and it's kind of diverted back to the larger pubs and the gaming focus. You are yeah. probably, without any disrespect to anyone I'm not thinking of, the first example of that sort of coming back with a fair bit of momentum and energy from your perspective though do you feel like there's a bit of shared momentum coming from other operators in the sector to to be doing similar things to what you are trying to do i assume so right and i know that i know that there are other operators that are being bullish at the moment who are who are doing it like i know that Swillhouse are bullish at the moment i know that you know there are probably five or six operators that I know of who are actively scoping out new opportunities, putting DEAs in, putting license applications in. And that's that's cool. That's kind of half of the exciting part for me is the planning side of it. And you feel the momentum in the planning part of council too. Like it's, we, we never get resistance from council really. Um, we've put a lot of these in now. Where resistance comes from is when they'll make a referral to the police normally and the police will make a comment and then, uh, as I've kind of lamented to Mike a a few times, like everyone's very nervous, right, in planning. No one wants to be the one who you can point to and say this person made this decision, you know. They want a lot of cover. So as soon as anything in, in in a... development application process becomes slightly controversial it just means it's going to take a very long time for a decision to be made because <laughs> everyone's fucking shit scared of being like this planner from council did this you know and that was a mistake or whatever so um but you can feel the momentum for sure there's there is appetite for change there is there is real change happening we're really lucky in the inner west too to have a really supportive police pac and licensing sergeant and that's all you know that's all you can really ask for you just the 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 days of the the suspicion are gone like i remember when i was operating that essentially what was a nightclub in the cbd 
uh, during the lockout period, some of the police business inspections we had were just horrendous. Like they would not, it would be front page of the newspaper today if it happened, you know, just the stories that I could tell of police coming in and walking behind the bar and going through stuff and just, it was just gross, you know, because there was this this suspicion that operators were were the ones who were doing things wrong, you know. and um, if things go too late, it's going to be this big mess that the police have to clean up over and over again. But I think, like, just on the diversification piece as well, it's like showing people... So, like, what, what we've applied for in Newtown and we were approved for the 4am consent is not a nightclub and it doesn't have a dance floor. And I think that's where everyone's minds have gone typically when they receive, when council receives an application for a late premises, they're like, oh, this is going to be a nightclub, which like, you know, fair enough, because that's all we've fucking had. (laughs) Um, Really? Like, you know, it hasn't gotten much better than that. Um, So, you know, there's just an education element to it being like, well, no, you know, at Odd Culture, which was the first venue on King Street in that upper part to to get a 2am consent, they were like, like, I remember the planner just being really confused that we wanted to serve food until um, 2am and being like, but, but no, like you'll close the kitchen at like nine and then it'll become a dance, like a dance floor. Right? And I was like, no, why, why? <laughs> it's such a, it's, it's like, um, I find it, uh, this is like a self-help group for me, this thing, by the way, this podcast, because I, 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 day in, day out, right? Like I, I, um, I, I'm just fighting, fighting this um, continual battle with like incumbent thinking that uh, the, the only thing, as we've discussed, you know, there was an ABC interview I've talked about where of the interviewer and the three um, panellists, they all have one thing in common. I'll talk about nightlife and none of them, they all agreed publicly that, that none of them go out. And mm. it's so on what basis are you commenting? And, and uh, they, they're commenting from memory of 20 years ago. And uh, it's oh, yeah. so it's so indelibly embedded in the psyche of the joint that it's hard. I've got uh, another example where... It's going to do some planners' heads in because I find myself saying to to owners, "Can you please apply for more flexible trading? Don't be conditioned into accepting what we did ten years ago because the system's being set up to try to support you through it." An example is, uh, very excitingly for me, is Fortress, which is a e-game sports thing, is coming into thousand-person thing coming into Central Park now. In uh, it's it's another one where I think it should have a twenty four hour license. It's you know if a game drops in the west coast of of, of LA, I'm sorry, west coast states, and yeah. maybe someone wants to be up at four in the morning. I haven't done the time zone analysis on that, but I feel like <laughs> it's something like that. <laughs> and um, and so you know it's it it is a thing um where the we have a generational challenge of thinking because for generations since colonization you, you know the night was the exclusive domain of you know the six o'clock spill and everything that followed and then you know so nothing good happens after midnight you know it's kind of the same thing that Kellogg's did with breakfast it's the most important meal of the day so they say but intermittent fasting and other things have come along and said well we didn't start eating breakfast till you know Kellogg's said we should you know it's this kind of same thinking that we need to really buck and i think that um it's exciting to me that um you know you've got i've got someone like you in the market that is uh more minded and actually you know delivering products like this that just say well no i want to i want to serve that musician at 2am and why not 
you know, I've got a question actually, because I'm also asked like, how do you know if it's if the work that you're doing is successful? I'm going to run this one by you because um, the thing that I um, was was reflecting on is that in that era in the thousands, um, you know, uh, and 2010 onwards, you had that like incredible Monday trade night vibe in Sydney. I think not, and I remember, obviously not. A, yeah. Not, not a lot of, not everywhere was open, but the venues that were open, what an awesome party. Uh, yeah. And, um, and, and, and I don't know, and, and I don't know whether, um, I don't know whether it's one of the tests, right? Like is, where's our trade night? Is it back or is it not? Because I think that, I think that that would be one of the indicators of, of, of health of the scene. Are you seeing in, in your venues a bit of, um, you know, trade camaraderie on, you know, slower nights because people are off or or is that changed? Is that thing of the past? A little bit. Like Monday to Wednesday we do get particularly, no, like a, across the board, like I'll read in our reports from our venues that we get a lot of industry people through. But um, the big one that, you know, I'm sure – everyone mentions is Thursdays have become like a big thing. A lot of our head office staff get public transport into work. And um, apparently on Fridays, it's just, it's a ghost town. No one goes to work on Friday anymore in like physically. In the CBD of Sydney. Yeah. 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 Look, it's, it, it is like, it is, there, there's this major shift in work pattern. But again, if you may, what's exciting is that, um, People are coming in, in on Friday afternoon, uh, you know, and and the, and Friday evening it's busy. Like from a just the people who are making that positive choice to come in and go out, it's fun. It's also not. I mean, it's probably not probably not your demographic necessarily, but I think even the if you look at that uni student school leaver uh, approach to Thursday nights, which was around when I was, you know, coming out of the industry in North Sydney and illustrious places like Berry Street Tavern where I started my career, you know, those Thursday nights were massive Greenwood. Um, but I think even I in the city, yeah. yeah. I was, it was Mona. It was Mona Val Hotel Thursdays for me. But it's great to see that and that, that, uh, I guess, appetite to go out on a Thursday night for kids now and have that late night experience. Because there was concerns even before COVID, I think, that those, you know, that late night party club experience, um, again, not necessarily your bag, I'm assuming, but that, that, that appetite for that was, was waning. But um, I think it's practical swing. So, um, James Love, what's the size of your group and uh, in terms of employees, uh, roughly? And then, I guess we talk a little. Love to talk a little bit about your own leadership style, management style, and I guess the demographic of your workforce as well. We've got, uh, we have 110 employees and what are the, what were the other questions? There are a few in there. What's my yeah, leadership yeah, yeah, style? Yeah. Is that one? Yeah. <laughs> As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's 11 days to the end of the year and I'm just like <laughs> trying to, <laughs> trying to hammer through things, but no, like, like, yeah, I guess the age, so 110, um, staff and then how, how do you go about your own leadership and, 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 and organizational management? These are, these are, these tend to be Luke's questions. So he's better at asking them. I'm just trying to, you know, try, trying to get on the action. So I, I mean, leadership style, there, there's kind of like, there's kind of two schools of thought, right? Historically with this, you've got the, um, 
that there's a, a, a prominent view. Um, uh, there's a quote by a Chinese philosopher. I'm trying to remember who it is. I think it's Lao Tzu who said that, you know, a, a best leader is the one who is, um, is not noticed, basically. But what, what he's trying to say there is that when the work is done, the workers say, I did this, I achieved this. So you've got that function of, of leadership where your, your function's kind of like to lead people to water in a sense, like, and then let them own the wins, which I'm a big believer in. Like we give a lot of creative control to our employees. We've had growing pains this year, you know, transitioning from a small to a medium-sized group has been really difficult for us because you you have to walk this line of creative control and also being at a scale where you can't let 110 cats go unherded, if you know what I mean. Like it's been a real uh, learning experience for us. We've had some new staff come on in our head office. So our group general manager, Daniel, was previously with Nomad as their group general manager. He's brought a lot of like expertise in systems and procedures and um, uh, all of that sort of stuff. So, uh, but, but so on the flip side of, of the leader shouldn't, shouldn't be noticed sort of philosophy i think it's important to lead from the front too so you want your employees to like own the wins that you make you want them to feel like they achieved something and they they contributed but i feel like in my role in particular i'm also you know i i i have to 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 lead with a vision that people buy into you like steer the shit as it were so i i guess those are the two elements of my leadership style is I like people to feel like they're a part of it and that they own the work that they do and feel good about that, but um, that everyone buys into the same vision and we're all going the same direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, and with that then, just in the current, uh, inverted commas, uh, challenges facing the hospitality sector labour market-wise, uh, how are you coping? We're doing, we're doing pretty well. We're doing pretty well. You know, it's like the, the hardest part about this is that we are, we're a group of people who are like incredibly passionate about hospitality and creating experiences for people, which is the, the, the gift that the general public give us in the industry is they entrust us with this kind of like phenomenological control. When they come into one of our venues, we get to control what they see, hear, touch, you know, smell. So, we are passionate about creating those experiences, but because of COVID, all the professionals have just fucking left the industry. It's really, really hard to find people who, who give a shit. And then of the people who give a shit, it's like the, the biggest skill we look for now, and I'm trying to actually at the moment come up with some really sort of poignant interview questions that we can ask to try and see if people have this skill. This, like, this, this skill, the most important skill that we look for in any role is this ability to take a big problem and break it down into like bite-sized tasks and then chip away at one task at a time. That, it sounds simple and intuitive, but it is a skill that you learn over a very long time and it's not common, that skill. The ability to go into, whether you're a, a, a venue manager or a head chef or a, a admin assistant in an office this ability to walk in and be presented with a quite a large and overwhelming problem and rather than you know so take take a moment to be overwhelmed but then sort of 
you know, center yourself and start work on, on breaking it into pieces and solving it. That's the skill that transcends through all industries. That is the skill that we look for in every role. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. We have a lot of really incredible people and we don't actually have that many job vacancies that come up, but when they do, it's been very hard to fill those job vacancies. So, uh, I mean, in terms of like the day to day, having enough hands thing, our strategy has just been to hire more people than we need. And we have roles in our head office now, like a, um, a new one that we hired recently is a group Torno chef, which I had not heard of before, who is basically... What is it? A Torno chef is like a travelling chef. So Torno chef is like the big fire putter outer for our group. And it's the fucking best role that we ever hired because I was starting to get the shits because I'd want to discuss some exciting concept or menu with our group executive chef, James Mack. And he was just always gone. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? He's like, Oh, I'm covering these three shifts here. This person has a kidney stone. This person can't like, they haven't hired someone here. And then this person's sick and this person has COVID. And we worked out that it's a full-time job just dealing with sort of that stuff. So we hired for it. And then we figured if there weren't fires to put out, we could do this amazing thing that I've never seen in my hospitality career, which is like have a leave calendar for people and send them on annual leave. <laughs> like people can actually take their annual leave. How amazing would that be in our industry? So we haven't quite gotten to that yet. Uh, but so we, we, we put on additional resources, but it's like, you know, it, it borders on not being commercially viable sometimes. Like, the labor market tightening has really put us in a tough spot with that stuff. And I totally get that a lot of small operators could never even dream of doing something like what I just described. You know, we're pretty lucky in that respect, but it's, yeah, it's definitely tough, definitely tough, but we're, we're getting through it. Like we're, we're, we're loving it. We've had a great year so far. And, and don't, don't tell us if it's sort of not yet public or whatever, but with your Melbourne site and uh, your Melbourne analysis, and I guess what can you tell us about the labour market? Is it consistent across Sydney, Melbourne, um, and the challenges? Part one, part two. Here he is again with multiple part questions. Let's just do part one. I'll say, yeah, yeah. I'll, let's do part one. I'll try and remember part two. Like, well. um, so I, I think it's pretty well known that the labour market in Melbourne is worse than in Sydney um, in hospitality. So that's scary. And being a Sydney-based group going down there, the unique situation we're in is that I am doing, so we're, we're doing the Melbourne venue um, as a partnership with one of my really, really old industry friends, Jerry Nass, who uh, has been a dear friend of mine for many, many years, who used to own good bar in the city and the Beresford before it sold to Justin Hems. So he, who lives in Melbourne with his family down there and who has like a little army of people who want to come and work there already. So I'm less worried about that down there. In a lot of ways too, like the concept that we're doing down there, which will be similar to Odd Culture, it'll be called Odd Culture in Fitzroy. It, it kind of suits Fitzroy better than it suits sydney in a lot of ways like melbourne's melbourne's got it going on man like melbourne there's a lot more passion down there i find sydney can be a bit of a rat race like 
people, you know, there's, there's a lot more of like people opening smaller shops who just want to like do something cool down there. Whereas I feel like up here, it's like, if you, if you want to do something, it's because you want to make a million bucks, you know, mm. to which I would say you, you should probably pick any other industry. <laughs> if, you're in, if you want, to, <laughs> if you want um, security about your nice, you know, 15% EBIT or whatever you're after, maybe go, go work in finance or something. Cause it's, it's been very turbulent the past few years. <laughs> Have you experienced any differences in planning between Melbourne and Sydney just through your uh, process of opening up down there? The, the processes are different. There are elements that were easier in Melbourne and we haven't received any roadblocks by any means, um, but our application is actually still under determination down there. It's been almost a year now. And, um, you know, I was just saying earlier that I get quite upset with councils in Sydney, like our 4am determination we had in Newtown recently took, um, like we put it in in March and it was determined in mid-October and I thought that was far too long. And so I sort of am of the opinion that councils should hire more people and try and make it a little bit easier for people because, you know, for a small operator, if you don't have a substantial rent-free period on a property, that can be the end of you, you know. If you're just sitting there waiting and the whole time it's like, yes, 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 like there's no problems with the application. It's just the, the determination period ended up being three or four months in Newtown and that was just for a report to be written and, and a determination sent out. And I think that's a bit of a piss take, you know. Like the, they're lucky that they're protected in the legislation because there are people out there who would sue for that. Because it co- it's cost real money, you know, to wait for a, um, a notice because you can't trade, obviously. So, um, yeah, like Mel- Melbourne's been pretty similar, just like the, their staffing issue. It's, it's Yarra down there, Yarra City Council. It just seems to be way worse. And then we have this kind of comedy of errors of people getting COVID one by one. And it's just like, so no, like pretty similar. It's just different. The liquor licensing laws are very different because it's funny what we're, and what we're going to end up doing down there is a hybrid bottle shop and bar restaurant. And there's not a license type in New South Wales that allows you to do that. The only one, well, it's not strictly true. There is one and it's the, the standard hotel license, which is one of the highest risk licenses. Uh, and they don't grant them because you can add poker machine entitlements to them. So in Melbourne, their gen- what's called a general license allows you to have both on and off premise sales just out of the box. They don't have a problem with it, but you know, we're, we're trying to do something similar with the bottle shop, add a little bar into the front of the bottle shop in Newtown at the moment and immediately council and liquor and gaming look at you and they're like, how do you think this is possible <laughs> to have two licenses in one place? It's uh, there's a couple of things there just quickly. Cause I think people might be interested in this and if not, well, too bad. I'm hosting <laughs> the um, number, number one, number, number one is that the, um, the uh, there's a liquor act review, um, liquor planning review underway in New South Wales and the moment and i think that and the screen industry we publicize this people are going to comment closes very shortly by the time this goes out it would have closed but what's referenced in there is a this kind of license builder approach it's kind of like a driver's license situation where
you can get it endorsed for motorcycle class, semi-trailer class and whatnot. And so I think that the conceptual thinking is there around um, making that system additive in the same way um, you're describing, James. Uh, the other thing in that um, I've only kind of um, come across uh, just as I've gone about my role and just dealing with some of the more immediate challenges versus some of the more systemic ones is that there's just another skill shortage in the urban planning sector and uh, councils are restricted in terms of um, finding people and in some ways uh, I understand that even the state government has been you know uh, absorbing shall we say people out of councils uh, so you've got this sort of skills gap and and so, so this is structural cure that's needed there it's going to take a little while no, no excuses though like we need to find ways of um trying to the thing that kills me is any idle capital in the market like it's just you know for, for if we have an ambition for you know flexible trading and a global city you just don't want yep. capital standing by doing nothing that, that's right and it's it's the unification of the process that doesn't work at the moment and we're actually um we're, we're submitting um i've been chatting with mick gibb at the ntia actually they're using the newtown place as a case study because we've realized that it is going to take us a full 12 months to get all of our permits in place because you've got your council application and then you have to do a cis part b which takes 30 days plus assessment and then you've got to put you know, so it's it's took us what like eight months to get our DA. We've got a thirty day waiting period for the CIS Part B, and then we put our application into Liquor and Gaming. It sits on their notice board for thirty days, and then there's a determination after that. And we so we probably won't get it all until February or March next year. Um, and everyone at every step in the process has not spoken to each other, so it's like starting again each time. It's like Groundhog Day. You know, it's <laughs> very, very frustrating. But, yeah, it's good to see that there's momentum. I, I totally back this, like, endorsement model where, you know, the, the planning permits, the primary vessel, I guess, and then you get an endorsement for liquor and, you know, I think that's great. Yeah, well, like, let's see. Let's, we'll pick it up, no doubt, the new year. And um, so that won't. Again, unfortunately, some of these things, people will be waiting on a while. But I, what I'd just say is that you've just got to – goes back to what you were saying, James, in terms of that skill you're looking for in the uh, staff that you're employing. Like, you know, people get paralysed by the size of the problem, obviously, and then yeah. just their response is system shuts down, can't deal with it. And I just, you know, you, my view is, well, you have to just eat the elephant one bite at a time on this and just, just understand it's an elephant, not a, not a, a smaller mammal. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk beyond the, I guess, the next couple of venues and I guess what you're seeing as your longer term strategy or vision for the company and, and, and how that may relate to what you're sort of seeing happening uh, or unfolding within the sector in general? Creating diverse food and beverage experiences is, is, is our thing. We're still honestly like COVID made our whole industry so like short-sighted it's like the crisis mode effect is what I call it. Like we still struggle to pull ourselves out of that modality that we've operated in since March of 2020. So, you know, what's my five-year plan? I really don't know. Um, we're just taking it as it comes. I never saw us being like a big, large, like 100 venue thing. I am honestly just doing this because I love it. And I, you know, every morning I get out of bed, 
I feel so energized and ready to like take on the problems of the day. And that, that's really what made me choose this career rather than academia. Cause I remember by the time I finished my honors year, whenever I thought about writing a thesis, I just felt physically sick in my stomach. And it's not to say I won't go back and do my PhD one day. Cause I think I might have a lot to say about gaming machines actually, but um, <laughs> I'm waiting until that sick feeling goes away. Cause I still do feel it when I think about writing it. 80,000 word document. <laughs> I, I, just I, I just love what I do. And the moment that I don't, then I won't. That's kind of my, my philosophy. So we're, we're trying to do cool stuff, interesting things. You'll never see a bland, boring venue from us. Like you just won't. So I don't want to take away from the last question in the final five, but to, invariably after any episode we do, Mike and I will get text messages from people who have taken something away from the chat. And I, I dare say today there'll be large operators, um, small operators did take some form of inspiration away. But I mean, where do you, where, where do you look to, if, if anywhere, I mean, it could be entirely your own brainchild and thinking, but where do you look for ins inspiration? Do you head overseas? Do you, are there people domestically that you, you think are nailing it? Ch Ch Chinese, Chinese philosophers, I'm learning. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, so our, our venue in Newtown, Odd Culture, was inspired by a trip to Belgium visiting the Grand Old Breweries there. For all of this business in Newtown, the 4am premises and potentially this CBD project, we are going on a two-week trip to LA and New York City in February with all of our key staff, product staff, to to get inspiration. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, you, you, you draw from certain places, but we we really do work together as a team to come up with, like, unique like the odd culture and it, it may have been a really, you know, overly ambitious concept because it was, it was like all of our, you know, grand plans across food and beverage and product and venue sandwiched into this one shop. Like it's definitely, we definitely chose the hard road, um, which is sort of a bit of a theme with us. I think <laughs> if we, we wanted to take the easy road. We'd buy, you know, a bunch of pubs that have gaming machines, I guess, but yeah, like, you know, take inspiration from overseas. Because I didn't, like, grow up in the hospitality industry, I'm not super connected in the way that a lot of people are. But I, I have people who I, I really respect in the industry. People who, like, this thing that people in my role and, and others in our head office try and nail is this, like, balance between having respect of people and being, being genuinely, like, liked and by people like the the balance between authoritarianism and being walked all over i guess is what i'm trying to say we've all had bosses in our career that sit somewhere on that spectrum a lot of mine in my career were on, on the authoritarian side where like you know they don't do any work they're a fucking asshole no one likes them and on the other side of the spectrum you have people who do everything like you know bum wipers is what i would call it like people who do everything for everyone and they're they're very well loved but no one respects them and so there, there are a few people in sydney who have really nailed this i'd say uh who would i say i'd say like toby hilton at swill house i'd say phil gannon people who you'll never hear a bad word about but who ran really effective operations. I could say a few bad words about Phil Gannon, just so you know. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure you could. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. He, he works in our business, so uh, I speak I know, with him. Yeah, yeah. He does. No, he's a good man. 
like that that's that's what i that's that's what i strive to be someone who is respected and 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 liked and and can do their job really effectively and when you're a manager your job is just other people's outcomes you know which is super tough super tough it's easy to go one way or the other but getting that balance right is really really difficult can I just pick your brain on um, the music scene and live music and and what you're doing in your own venues? I think the Duke, if I remember rightly, I've uh, I've, I've I've had cause to say, can you turn that music down? No, just joking, but like it, uh, I've seen um, you've got live music on there, but like, are, are you do, do you see live music as key to the success of your venues? Part one, and I'll save part two for later. <laughs> um. I, we have a real passion for live music in the venue, obviously because of my my background. Um, yeah. I come from that place. Our group operation operations manager, Sabrina, you know, was the GM at Frankie's and um, has a sort of live music family. Like her dad's a famous band manager. Um, and even like, even, you know, all of us, like our group Bev manager, Jordan, used to be across from me in the mosh pit at Shinto Katana shows, like hardcore shows back in the early two, 2000s. So, you know, like we love live music. We don't necessarily do it as a, like I, I think there are business models that can make lots of money from live music, but it ta- like it takes a lot of work. It's It really is a passion project. It's not, it's not seen as like a revenue center for us at all. We just do it. The Duke has... Like, and it's all Sabrina. She books all the bands across the group. Just some incredible lineups of local and sometimes international artists. Like, well, obviously, we'll start seeing the internationals come back in again. We already are, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is really important to us. And, and what you'll see from us in the next few years will have a, a, that will be a focus for sure. And um, do, you, do you see, um, I guess, like, a, I get so let me let me just phrase this right. Like in terms of that diversification piece, like so I guess venues that um, uh, are, are focused only on um, you, you know alcohol is back in the day and gaming and so forth. Like outside of the music component, are there other things that you're thinking about? I'll give you an example. There's this board game place I came across in Haymarket. I was telling you about. There's an arcade vibe down at 1989. There's a whole bunch of I guess non live music entertainment options are you looking at any of those things or not really uh i don't know yeah like yeah maybe um something that really interests me is like so we're like quite a technologically advanced hospitality group we all love tech and i totally see us being like i totally see us so someone's gonna nail this interaction between artificial intelligence and and restaurants at some point someone's gonna figure out how to really nail what waiters do by tech and it hasn't been done yet but it's not far away you know you the, the closest that we have at the moment would be sort of the order at table beacons which is like you're not going to see that in a restaurant really uh, or those really kooky robots that bring the food to your table. Have you yeah. seen those? <laughs> yeah, I've seen, I've seen one of those. I don't think food being delivered to tables necessarily, you know, is, is something we're interested in being done by robots. But certainly, like, you know, sitting down at a table and having a really interesting interface where you could order food as a group and, like, someone's going to nail that and it'll become somewhat standard. A little bit cyberpunky, I guess, 
that that's stuff I'm really I think about a little bit. Also, just speaking about AI, AI systems to solve problems. And the whole point of tech is to make people work less, right? Like, so there are parts of the informational side of what we do in hospitality that should be automated and done by machines, but still isn't. Solving problems with that stuff is interesting. I'm a big back of house guy though. So, you know, maybe I'm not really answering the question that you asked. <laughs> Are we going to open an arcade bar? Probably not. <laughs> oh, like it's just interesting for me to see, like, understand trends. And I think that you know, when you're talking about AI, there, Carl over at YCK's got a um, basically gamification of the going out experience through um, yeah. augmented reality. So yeah, it's kind of putting putting the going out experience in the hands of a zillennial um, and alpha audience and just saying, well, you choose and, you, you know, rewarding gameplay essentially throughout a district. So I can mm. see, I can well and truly see that, um, you, you know, that, that, that happening uh, and um, enabled by tech. It's happened. It's happened always in the going out world. You know, that's why you have clustering. That's why different experiences lay it up, make for a, a good night out. But in the old world, there was just no device that would enhance that, or reward that and now we, we have it and and that device is entirely part of the going out experience and so so i, I yeah I, I guess it's kind of one of those just i was curious if you because I, I i think what's behind the behind that question actually is like we sometimes constrain our thinking based on these paradigms you know so very much the entertainment scene is is it gaming is it alcohol is it live music you know that, that that's that's pretty much three things and it's it just restrains how we the potential you know, so it's things like um, escape rooms and these types of things kind of come in or virtual reality. Like they're just different paradigms, really. And um, that's where the esports stuff people haven't really, I think, really cottoned onto. It taking the power of what people are doing at home and putting it back into the into the going out experience. I think there's where some of the opportunities are. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. But what you did admit to there, James, is that you're uh, you're, you're a back of house guy, which uh, we we know you're on the podcast. Um, so. <laughs> We're going to do the final five, so I don't know whether we've prepped you on these or not, but uh, in our little cheat sheet, there's five quick questions we like asking our um, our guests, so Luke's alluded to one of them, but I'm going to come at it again. Favourite book that you've read or podcast that you listen to? Uh, definitely the Back of House podcast, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so actually just on the back of what we were talking about with AI, I'm, I've read a really, really interesting book by a philosopher I used to study. Um, his name is David Chalmers. He's a professor at NYU called Reality Plus, which is like a philosophical look at AI, deep fakes. Uh, so like a, a deep dive into virtual reality, augmented reality. What's the sort of ontological status of those things? Is virtual reality any less important than real, you know, than actual reality? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm finding that awesome. Love that book. Always love David Chalmers. Great suggestion. I may read it myself one of these days. Christmas coming up. Um, Favourite album or artist right now? I've been listening a lot to a band called Movements, who are from Southern California. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Good. Nice. Very good. 
And uh, if you are, as you find yourself often, I imagine, um, craving a drink, what might that be? Uh, it's always always a Negroni these days. Always a Negroni. I have been known to do the, the Negroni and glass of lager combination. That's a good one. Double parked. <laughs> I love a Negroni. They're great. They are, they are indeed. They're a favourite on this podcast, that is for sure. Favourite venue? You can maybe um, one of your own or but more, more probably um, one that isn't your own. Um, Favourite venue? Like probably actually my living room at home. But um, I think uh, <laughs> I would say, I'd say Cafe Passy in Newtown. That's my – I had a good thinking about this one and that that is what I would say. Outstanding. Just just awarded two hats at the Good Food Awards a few weeks ago, which is so well-deserved. It's a fantastic restaurant. And a favourite of mine as well. Luke asked you about who you're inspired by, but, like, um, if you have to name someone in the industry who you're most inspired by, um, who might that be? Oh, that's a really tough one. I don't, I don't know if I have an answer to that. Who in the industry I'm most in- inspired by? Maybe you, Mike. <laughs> Is that is that is that a is that, is that a gag to to finish <laughs> no, us up? No, but uh, if, I actually really I really admire the work that you do. Like we speak the same language, you know. That we see the you see the problems, and I I, I really don't know. I, I I really I I I really admire the people I work with over here, Daniel and Sabrina and Jordan James Nick. Like we have just an incredible team. It's one of those times where you sit back and you're like, in 30 years' time, I'm going to think back on this period and all of these people will have gone on to do just incredible things and we all get to work together for this little moment. Yeah, they definitely inspire me. This is atypical to conclude the podcast on, but one thing that um, there's a lot of love on it, through the course of the discussion today, through the interactions that you know I've had with you the last year or so, and uh, and Luke, in in terms of the work that you know we've been doing for some time, what I can see, and to to the point about the venues that are coming and who's opening them, is is what you'd expect at the end of or sort of where we are at this phase of the pandemic, which is which is an, a next generation of leadership em- emerging through the scene. And I think that um, James, you're you're definitely part of that. I think that you know I I, I am as well I, in in my role. And I think that um you know in in three to four years like caliber of operator the the kind of thinking that we have at, at this table right now but also in these emerging leaders is is just super exciting for you, you know for for, for a, a, a better future for going out not only in in sydney but across across the country so just for me thank you so much for um your ongoing uh support and you know candor it's really helpful to have uh, a, a source like you to just go mike this is what's wrong uh and um and you know of course like for your contribution to the city through your venue and and the staff that you employ and all the people that you um, give a good time to on a day and nightly basis increasingly. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. And, yes, I'm definitely not known for holding my tongue about things. (laughs) 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 Um, But it's been great chatting with you guys. It's just like we're sitting around in the living room having having a yak, isn't it?